I think a lot of Canadians sort of feel like dual citizens. Yeah. You kind of grow up so much engulfed in your... We There's so much American TV. Yeah. A lot of pop cultural pop culture exports uh it's like a 30 percent rule on the cbc yeah right? like we have to have laws to make sure that <laughs> canadian things get made yeah. and that they get in circulation because people love like the the world's infatuated with american yeah. movies and everything and we're so close so we but we also get a lot of cable like i grew up watching tv and a lot of the channels are american channels you, know, yeah. you get like rochester new york news and stuff like that so the lines are blurred and things that happen here certainly feel like they're happening in canada too and especially right now it, it's it, it it bleeds over a lot of the things that you know like today the solar panel tax that just seems like there's no reason for that other than to be a force of evil to to make it hard to 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 generate solar power a growing industry that's like creating jobs and trump uh yeah. is now taxing it by 30 percent or something and like those things affect everybody, not just the United States, but certainly the election. I think everybody felt affected by that because, yeah, it's a, you, this country is pretty obviously a, a powerful country in many ways, but all, but in a, a psychological way for sure. Yeah, I, th- I think a lot of Canadians. I guess what I was trying to say is a lot of Canadians feel probably partially American. We're we're proudly Canadian, but we also, you know. We're, we're also partially American, I think. <laughs> I, I would I would say like, oh, but you dealt with Harper, but it's just it's different. It's like saying Very. like we we had uh, you know George W. Bush before, but this is just this is uncharted territory. I keep every every time I have somebody on the show who's you know older than fifty, I have to ask them. You lived through Nixon, you've lived through a lot of presidents. Is there any precedent for this at all? And it just, there just doesn't seem to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. Most people some. On the, the election day, that was the line a lot of people used, I guess, right? Yeah. It was like, hey, you know, I've been here before. We went, we went through this with Nixon. We went through this with Reagan. And we went through this with Bush. And we're going to get through it. And then I think over the past year, almost everybody who said that is just like, never mind. <laughs> no, this, this is genuinely is... really weird. And you've been around long enough. You try to put things into perspective for people because especially, you know, when we're of a certain age and we, when we watch teenagers and younger folk on the internet freaking out about every single thing because it's the first time they've ever been through it. It seems helpful to put things into historical context, but there just there just isn't one here. Yeah, it's it's creating a whole new context that yeah. that you know twelve year olds are going to grow up with <laughs> potentially, um, and that's the frightening thing. And I mean, and I, I'm afraid right now. Actually, I mean, this anxiety plays into this conversation that people are listening to yeah. eventually. If, if they're put, turning on this podcast yeah. and hearing a Trump conversation, they could immediately just shut it off because yeah. I think a lot of people a year in are trying to just tune it out now. People are actively involved, I think, more than ever. But also, I think, and I've noticed this in myself, are starting to get desensitized to it. Things don't feel as crazy anymore. It's you, frightening. You have to, though, for your To survive. Own. Yeah, exactly. You said every conversation, particularly here, kind of naturally cycles back around to it. But you have to live your life. Yeah, exactly. Which is, for better or worse, I think it's human, it's a survival instinct that we have to get through traumatic experiences. And uh, we normalize things because you have to be able to do that um, in order to, to get through it. But it also means sometimes that people give up or that they don't give up, but that their apathy gets the better of them. And I am afraid of that because, yeah. But anyways, I'm also afraid that uh, people right now are like, shut up. Obviously, you've never been a particularly 
political band and most of your songs definitely hew toward the personal but when something like this happens and now that you're you know a part-time american citizen and like you said this is something that impacts everybody do you get that impulse of like i'm i'm i have a platform i'm out there i could potentially talk about this and address this Mm -hmm. or channel this through my music yeah i think uh in a lot of ways it's those types of messages have transferred over to the way you handle your um discourse through social media the way yeah. you handle uh the things that you retweet or talk about and the way you indicate your political stance through those things and not necessarily it's there you know there are some people who obviously would get very heavily political with their lyrics and their mm -hmm. records with with me in terms of songwriting it's always something that finds its way in 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 nebulous ways or in just not not exactly I'm not going to write a song that says the word Trump or that says literal things in the same way that I don't. It rhymes with so many great things. It does, yeah. <laughs> Rump. I try and write things that suggest what they're about rather than tell you what they're about. So I think it has found its way in. I don't, this record, it's funny. I don't know how much of it made its way in, but yeah. uh, that, you know, it's essentially an anger or a frustration that will probably find its way into your songs in the same way that if you're sad, upset, or heartbroken, that finds its way into your songs too. And I think a lot of people are doing, uh, are finding, I mean, I found that with, with records that have come out in the past year and comedy specials mm. and stuff and people avoiding taking a direct line of, of saying, Hey, this is bad because everybody knows it's bad and you're preaching to the choir, yeah. but more so venting a frustration maybe or, and also, I mean, I think when creating music, you're constantly evaluating the symbolic nature of our band is, is, uh, the optics of our band is like three or four white dudes, cis male white dudes, <laughs> possibly, you know, like, so you think of those things too. And like when your opinion matters and how it matters and how to present that, that can be kind of, uh, you know, what, if you start getting political, you have to be, yeah. you can't do it half ass. I don't think you yeah. have to be full, uh, whole hog with it or whatever. If there's something that particularly straight white dudes have learned in the last couple of years is there's value in listening. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And if you're going to say something, I mean, that that's like almost the, <laughs> and that's almost become a meme in and of itself yeah. just to listen or whatever. And I agree with that so much. Like that's how, you know, and then even that, if you're coming in that at that from a position of power of like, well, as the person in power, I feel like my position here is to listen to you. The uh, Basically, I guess what I'm saying is like we just kind of do what we do. Yeah. We've always just kind of done what we've done. And, yes, we're very aware of these things. We talk about them constantly when we get together. We're a band that is very passionate about the world and, and the way the way we might affect it. But we also feel like as just creating music is a force of good that we're not putting anything bad out into the world. We feel good about that. And we do try and I think overall we just try and take it as like that kind of, hey, we're here to entertain people. We want to help in that way of like if people are fans of our band, Escapism. for them to come out to a show and have yeah. fun and not necessarily have us lecture them on stage or sing songs that are just about how crummy things are. Um yeah, so there's that too. I don't know. I feel like I'm going to hear this back and go, oh boy, I sound like it. I think it's pretty safe to say at this point in the conversation that you perhaps have a tendency to overthink things. Oh yeah. And <laughs> that can, that can muddy the waters when you're trying to write a pop song. Uh huh. Yeah. It, the, 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 yeah. Well, songwriting is interesting in that respect because it's either, it's one or the other for me. I overthink things certainly in conversation. I'm the guy in the band that's like, 
you know, well, this. But on the other hand, this. <laughs> and on a third hand, it I'm could the same also way be you this. Hedge, you hedge your bets. Yeah, and it drives people crazy yeah. sometimes. And then I can also be extremely decisive and whatever. I'm the same way where I hedge my bets a lot, and then I am decisive for incredibly arbitrary reasons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's the worst way to be. <laughs> and, that one, and then the one time you go with your yeah. gut and you make that decision, it's like the wrong one, and you go, yeah. oh, crud. With songwriting, it's one or the other, though. It's either it comes straight out of your brain into the world. That's the ideal, that right? Whole, yeah, like the whole rate, you're, you're, a, you're an antenna and you're just picking up ideas. That Channeling the muse. Yeah, I mean, it's a cheesy thing, but it's real. I've sat down and written a lot of songs that feel like I didn't write them. They just kind of came out. And those are always great. But then that, that doesn't happen all the time and you can't just sit around and wait for that to happen. So you do have – sometimes you think, I would like to write a song for this person or about this thing. And you have to sit down and, and deliberately do that. You, you can't just expect that to come out. But I like that. I like those two different modes and sometimes starting with one and moving to the other. Sometimes you'll start with something and you'll get a good bit and then you go, okay, now what, let's analyze what this is about. I think it's about this. And then you kind of work through that and try and finish it or get more out of it. Or The classic example in pop music is Satisfaction, right? Where Keith Richards like wakes up in the morning and he has a, the riff that he's sung into a tape recorder next to the bed. If that's the ideal, though, you spend the rest of your time banging your head against the wall. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can drive yourself crazy. Yeah trying to wait for that level of inspiration to come along if you expect that to be the norm. Um, and I don't think there's anybody out there really that could claim that. I mean, you'll go through phases where you might have a spurt of a week or a few days where you get so many ideas, but man, it dries up. I'm guilty of that, of going into my place where I write or whatever, banging my head against a wall and getting frustrated that why aren't any amazing ideas coming today? And I'll write some shitty thing that like I don't have any connection to and I'll never use it. This, you know, but it's sometimes good to force those ideas out because it might spur something that down the road you go, oh, that wasn't actually that bad. And then that spurs an idea that's genuine. It's good. To, I think all writers um, have to work at it. Basically, it's you have to you have to find a way to treat it as work, but also find true inspiration and have fun doing it. Music in particular, I think, is, and playing in a band, if your music isn't coming from a place of love and you're not having fun while you're generating it, then it's probably not, at least for me, I, this is me, it's probably not very good. It's not going to be good. And what I mean by that is like you, you could be miserable doing it, but that's still emotion. You don't, you don't want to be, be going through the motions. Yeah, exactly. And you don't want it to just be, oh, we're going to go to practice. We're going to bang a song out yeah. and blah, blah, blah. Because you can, you know, once you get your shit down, you can do that. You can go bang songs out and like write some stupid lyrics. But you only ever want to actually put stuff out that you really emotionally that draws a line from you out to the world or something that you can go this makes me feel something when i sing it and when i play it as a band you've managed to maintain a pretty regular schedule with regards to records coming out every two to three years how are you able to do that do you really have to kind of sit down and decide that it's time to put another album out we have those very literal conversations but it's also you know when the timing's right or wrong we've always felt like we're not doing enough I always feel that way. That's, uh, most people do. Unless you're Bob Pollard, you can't put out, you know, 12 albums in a given right, year. Right, right. Yeah. It's pretty, we've been talking about this a lot lately because we are ahead of the curve for once. We had so much material. We recorded the record that's coming out and we had a bunch more and we've written more. And that's rare for you? It's 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 rare to be so on top of it and, and ready to go back in the studio and go like, well, let's do another one while we've got time. Wait, so you're already thinking about the next one? Yeah. And I'm not, probably shouldn't, I mean, it's fine to talk about that. I guess what I should make clear is as a sidebar is we're super super excited for the record that's coming out right now <laughs> we're very into it it's not we're not over it but we're 
we're always looking forward to the next one. I mean, it's it's common that once your record's actually coming out, you've been sitting around for six yeah. months and you've written more songs. And so you've started on the next one. And a lot of bands do that. And it just takes, it's how much time it takes to accumulate however many songs you feel necessary to then choose the ones that are the best out of that. You live here, but you're sort of this week doing a lot of press around the record that's coming out in a couple of weeks and you're starting on the tour but in a way you have to after not really having thought about those songs for six months you have to get yourself back into that headspace a little bit yeah the lucky thing is it, this record is very to me i have a strong connection to this record and so it hasn't really left my it hasn't been too far from my mind and in a lot of ways the new material is a lot of this material came from one of those things that we were talking about earlier like a really bright light spurt of of creativity and Whatever it was that had this, for me, there was kind of like a bit of a lightning strike moment of just writing a bunch of stuff. And I wrote a bunch of songs and then just continued to write. And a lot of the songs that might be coming out from us in the next little while had maybe a similar genesis, if that's the right word, a similar origin. And so they all, it, it kind of feels like there's like a kind of a new era of, of Born Ruffians music that this record might be the first chapter in and that it's all kind of part of the same thing or something like if if it were a novel it would be like the first part of maybe a two or three part story or something so it's all to me kind of linked together in a way what's the delineating factor it's a mix of sort of maybe actually realizing that i really just like writing guitar and simple uh non-electronic music i guess it's a funny thing of being in a band at a certain point like you start you keep adding and adding stuff you're trying to keep it interesting for yourselves and everyone else and at a certain point you realize like how did we accumulate all this baggage over the years yeah so there's this kind of realization that at the core of my musical inspiration is like this sort of my parents and my grandparents music of more uh thinking kind of classic rock stuff for lack of a better way to put it and realizing that we're a rock band and that we function and play really well together and that our records sound good when they sound like we're just playing together in a room. And I don't know, finding this kind of nugget of inspiration that kind of feeds into this version of rock and roll that I feel I need to express or something. You know, uh, I don't know. I think about this a lot, though, in terms of me and, me and Steve and Mitch were talking about this, too, in terms of like rock and roll as a as a dying art form or something, mm. something that kind of feeds back into itself. You yeah. know, if you look at it in the grand scheme of things, of it being like having a huge burst in the 50s, 60s, 70s and kind of tapering off. And now it's sort of like, what is rock music? And, and it's, it's all is, very self for better, or for worse, very self-referential. Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of going the way of maybe jazz or opera or mm things that it gets hard to delineate what what this is what, like which is this new or is this just referencing something and why is it important and we struggle with that but at the same time it's what we do and there is still this feeling of this need to do it and so that's why we do it um, and we hope that it's in some way new or fresh at least for our band and I believe it is I mean now I'm starting to get like a down or something but more like philosophically like what is the reason for creating rock music and it, to me it's like just trying to find like the center of it for me and trying to feed off of that while still sort of looking in while still looking out and trying to circle outwards and spiral outwards and find new ways to express that musically so you feel like you've gotten at something as far as the core of the band i mean at what, at what point does this realization really set in is it when you're out there playing the songs it sounds like what you're getting at is almost a rediscovery of what it was that got you excited about the music in the first place that's right Yes, thank you for putting it that way. I, I was really rambling there on my uh, Starbucks two bag tea caffeine uh, high, and you're right that that 
to me is also a a big part of this record is coming back to that realization of why yeah. we started the band. And a big part of that is the lineup coming back to its original lineup. Steve, our drummer, we started this band when we were 15 in <laughs> high school with the three of us. Me, Mitch, and Steve. Steve left for three years to go back to school and came back and wanted to tour again. And, and it reinvigorated the band and kind of gave it more of a purpose again. Um, we had replaced him with a drummer who's a fantastic drummer and a fantastic person. But the relationship of a band is so specific. Um, it's uh, it's like any other complicated relationship, I guess, or any kind of romantic relationship. It's like trying where... to graft a body part back onto a body, it yeah. sounds like. Just... Uh, it. It felt it was good, but it felt like we were doing another band or some kind of yeah. other weird version of our band, which is fine. I mean, as, yeah. you know, especially at this point that you've been doing it for as long as you have, it, mm-hmm. it's nice to branch out and try something else. Yeah, and it worked. But you know, it might have been reaching a point where it was kind of like, well, maybe maybe we should just call it. You know, like w- maybe we should do other things. Were you having Steve, those conversations? Literally, I was having those conversations, kind of with myself and my yeah. girlfriend or whatever, of thinking like, man, I don't know, maybe it's time I just do this or that. But Steve coming back really made it feel like it had purpose again because it was just like, oh, right. And just playing together felt better than it had ever before and our and our friendship was stronger than ever and all of these things. We got a new manager. Everything just feel, felt like it was working better than ever. And um, and I think all of that coincided with this, this sort of writing phase of writing songs too yeah. that just helped. Because I could go to the band and go like, and also here's a bunch of songs that I have started writing or that I've written. And then we jammed more and wrote more. And it just like all of it kind of coincided and coalesced into this like record that we that we're putting out now. And so just in terms of a personal, because the band is so personal, there is that. It's just like this reconnecting with our band and with our own music, which... You know, for anybody listening that's not a fan of the band, I understand that's not like a huge pitch or a huge sell of like, <laughs> hey, this band that you don't know about has really done something that they love. Go listen to it. And that's, I guess, to bring it back to like rock music and what rock musicians have to say, it's like, that's where it gets tricky. And I'm not good at that. I'm not good at selling myself or selling our stuff. How do you connect that to a bigger picture conversation of uh, what's the point of this, though? <laughs> I think I think a lot of it, though, is it's pretty clear as an audience member, as a listener, when somebody's doing something that, that I mean, you, you said that, you know, obviously misery is an emotion and that's something you can tap into. But if you genuinely don't want to be doing it, it's pretty clear when the person in the room doesn't want to be there. Yeah, that's true. You've been doing the same thing since you were 15. You must have you must have gone through some of those points. Luckily, I don't I don't recall ever making a song or a record where where I didn't want to be doing it. It's always come. It's definitely always come from like I really want to be doing this. I certainly would never do it if I didn't want to be doing it. Even if this band were making me tons of money, which you know it's not, but whatever. We it's a living, and I'm not. I know I'm not the type of person that's motivated by those things. Yeah. I'm motivated by personal fulfillment and wanting things to to make me feel like I'm, you know, doing something. And it's always been that. It's always been, there's always been something pushing it forward for me. I feel, I don't know if I can name names or think of anything off the top of my head, but I do, I feel like I have heard, have you ever heard a record or seen a band and gone like, those guys, they don't want to do, they don't want to be doing this. They don't like, they don't, they don't appear to have yeah. put any effort into this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there are, I'm sure I could probably think, gave yeah, me I guess, five minutes, I can think of dozens of Yeah, them. we don't want to start going down that. Yeah, like, I mean, there's, you talk, know, that's but... a, that's the problem with reunion records. Yeah. It's very clear when something is a, is a cash grab. Yeah. They just don't want to be there. When you can hear the inspiration is dried yeah. up. And you hear it a lot with older guys too that have been around for 30 or 40 years, right? 
I think there's, you know, there's the Paul Simon, who I think is not that. I think when he puts a record out now, you hear it and you go like, this might not be his best record, but to me, new Paul Simon material from the last 10 years is like, this has a purpose. You know, this mm. he's still striving to say something and do something here. And then you hear something else like the new Stones record and you're just like, what are you, I don't know, like, what are you doing? I mean, the blues cover one is like it, whatever. Sure. Yeah. At a certain point, a, a band becomes a corporation, and I think yeah, they crossed that threshold exactly. a while ago. Yeah. I mean, there's artistic expression, and yeah. then there's just doing something as a commodity. You're you're creating a, basically a commercial for your band. Young bands do it too. I, yeah. I know bands, and I've seen bands do it where it's like they're not writing a record. They're not. They're writing like songs that they hope they get on the radio. That kind of drives me crazy too has the topics that you're trying to convey have those changed? i mean they must have your life has changed around it so the stories you're trying to tell must have changed as a result of that yeah for sure i mean the story like lyrically you mean like the what, subject matter yeah. yeah i think in some ways it has in some ways it hasn't yeah i think i'm a pessimistic person who tries to fight that um and i think i see the world as a scary ultimately potentially pointless place and trying to find a meaning within that and constantly trying to fight like a there's sort an existential of, undercurrent in your yeah, work yeah and 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 the meaningless of everything i guess uh i wasn't raised atheist but i wasn't raised religious i was yeah. never baptized so i don't i've never connected with any kind of religious thing so i i come at it from that perspective too but i'm not trying to push that i'm not trying to say you know i'm i'm never talking about people's beliefs and how they're stupid i'm just saying for me i and i don't believe that i believe that if you i believe god and whatever is beautiful but <clears throat> for me, there's this this fear of like this meaninglessness of life and kind of maybe trying to fight that or trying to embrace that or whatever. And I think that has been a common thread through everything I write of like trying to f figure that out, which is very much a self-centered type of yeah. uh, expression. And then there's like trying to express something outwardly or trying to write a song about my dad or my parents or uh, for my girlfriend or my friend or, you know, like trying to say something about something else or someone else, too. Um but as far as self-reflective things, it's evolved as much as I've evolved as a person and becoming less of a less depressed, less anxious, less whatever, and figuring out my stuff as I go. As somebody who, again, for better or for worse, that depression or that pessimism is a bit of a driving force. Do you think you're a better songwriter when when you're happy or sad? I certainly would say I write less when I'm happy. Huh. That's, for sure. I battled a bit with depression over the last few years, and really the first time in my life where I've really, you know, had bad days, but the first time in my life where I've had extended spells. And I have the thing that I tend to grapple with is they call it anhedonia, which is sort of the um, the inability to sort of drive pleasure out of creative things. And the last thing I want to do when I'm in that state is right, but it sounds like you're able to channel that. No, that because that's the other thing. It's yeah. a dangerous. It's 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 a razor thin. You don't want to go making yourself depressed to write exactly songs. because yeah. that's the other thing. Because I'm familiar with that as yeah. well, where everything feels everything feels pointless, what's, and I can't listen to music either because I'm like, what's the point of like? Yeah. I don't like this. That doesn't where you get kind of so far down yeah. that you're kind of going. You don't derive pleasure out of anything really and we're so goal oriented too at the especially you know just being alive in the 20th 21st century of every single thing has to have some sort of payoff yeah and you have and you have to be delusional enough to think that those payoffs mean anything too yeah. right for i mean and that's not a bad delusion you need 
You need to you again, need to feel again like, like Trump. You need to be delusional in order to just kind of carry on your day. Yeah, yeah. We all need to live in some kind of pretend reality yeah. that we've made up because the the truth is the that reality is so infinitely complex and impossible to understand. Well, the truth is that, that we, bad things happen to people for no reason. That too, yeah. I can't even understand Bitcoin or how basic like economic structures work. I can only cope and get through certain aspects of reality, you know, like I have to ignore, you have to weed out all of the bullshit or the things that you deem inconsequential to you in order to feel like your life, you're moving through your life in any meaningful way. And And when you're writing, you have to you have to kind of trick yourself or you have to be in a headspace where you feel like what you're writing matters and that it, you want to do it. Um, if you're if you're too far down, if you're feeling depressed or whatever it is, it's going to be hard to do that. Um, it's a fine line to yeah. walk, I guess, where you – when when you might write more when you're feeling sad but in a manageable sad, you know? You don't want to necessarily induce that. But I, I wrote a song on this record that came from – a very manageably sad day of the day David Bowie died, where it made me feel very sad, but the kind of sadness that you relish, that you you can own that sadness because you understand it and you understand where it's coming from. David Bowie's dead. He meant a lot to me. I feel sad, but it's kind of this uh, beautiful sadness that I, you know, I listened to his records and I cried and I felt bad, but I felt good. You know, that kind of sadness yeah. where you like you're enjoying it in a way. Uh, not in a perverse way, but because it's like a sad movie that makes you cry. You might leave it and go, like, that was a great movie, even though I cried so much. I haven't heard the song yet, but it sounds like you're sort of tapping into something a little bit more abstract, how you were feeling at the time, how it yeah. impacted you. It's not It's not a song literally about David Bowie, or is it? No, no, it's not. It's a, it's a song about death, though, and it's a song about yeah. the, the beautiful nature of death and how— Which is easy— to tap in the beautiful nature of death if you did not know the person directly. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And I think it brought certain things to the fore for me that I had been peripherally dealing with or not dealing with uh, the year leading up to David Bowie dying. My dad had gone through cancer diagnosis mm-hmm. and treatment, chemotherapy, radiation, and he's fine now. Or he's you know goes and gets checkups and clean bills yeah. of health and the treatments work. But uh, I hadn't uh, written about that and thought about it very much. In a in a songwriting way, I thought about it obviously in terms in a personal way. It hadn't entered into my songwriting. If your first impulse is "What song can I get out of this?" that's problematic. Yeah, I mean exactly. And I have since written him a song, and and it's a whole other conversation. But the David Bowie passing away, I don't know. It just brought me to this place emotionally, and I think all of that culminated in this song. It's the first song on the new record. It's called "Forget Me," and it's uh, it's like. Someday you'll get older. I'll be right behind you. It's it's about facing the light with somebody. It's mm. it's uh, it's about we're all doing the same thing. We're all gonna die. We're all on the same trap path uh, towards this light or whatever. I mean, I use the light as like it's yeah. a very cliche metaphor, but I use that. And it we're all facing that light together. We're all doing it together. And David Bowie's way of doing it was so inspiring and so beautiful. He put this record out, and then he dies, and then you go, "Oh my God, he! This was his farewell." And you—he was telling us something. We didn't realize it at the yeah, time. Yeah, and just like everything else he did, it was inspiring yeah. and incredible. And yeah, it all kind of came together for for me. And that's the song was a, was the product of that. Because I do think death is can be infinitely scary, but it can also just be like a a thing that you do at some point, and it's not scary, and it can be actually really it's 
can be a beautiful thing too. It's interesting. You mentioned cliches with regard to the idea of the light. And, and as somebody who's, you know, writing a, a song about death, as somebody who's writing, written a million songs about love, do you end up sort of sitting down and starting those songs and, and balling up a lot of pieces of paper because you've written something that's just way too on the nose? That that song in particular was there was no balled up paper. It was one of those that just kind of yeah. came out. It was like I had the guitar and I literally just started singing with the chords and it was like, boom. I just it it all kind of came out. It was like someday a white light will come for you to comfort you. I'll put my shades on to shield my eyes. But and it just came out that way. And yeah. I was like, oh, take me through like the actual like moment by moment of like so, what that looks like. Well, it was literally uh, it's interesting. It's like instead of writing it, you your brain yeah. bypasses that part and it goes straight out. You just got a verse will, comes out fully formed. Yeah, exactly. Huh. It's really it's like um, I, I sing gibberish lyrics a lot. Yeah, especially when we're writing as a band because You're it's working hard on melodies. To just, and, yeah, so yeah. I'll just go shibiabadubadibiabadabadu oh, whatever. Scatter. and yeah, and then those words will start to form real words, yeah. and you'll start to go oh, and sometimes it's shit. Sometimes it's like oh, that's the same words over and over. That, and other times it's like this thing. You mentioned Paul Simon before. Yeah. And I think he is somebody who has really been doing this since the beginning. But he, I think the reason why a lot of his lyrics are so nonsensical is because it's, it is more about that sort of stream of conscious free flow and the way that words sound in music versus some larger overarching meaning. And Paul Simon also has some of the most profound, amazing lyrics and songs too. Uh, I'd be super curious to hear how he writes a song. I've heard David Byrne talk, speaking in tongues, talking his yeah. record was apparently. Uh, written that way too and i was i was like oh that's how i write a lot of stuff too where it's you just start doing it and then before you know it you're doing it you're writing it uh, you can do that with a paper and pen too start writing gibberish or writing words freeform writing that's a common practice like yeah. get up and write for an hour write it write literally anything obviously everybody approaches it differently but i've spoken to several musicians who really have to almost make office hours for themselves we're sitting in this office area right here this is my day-to-day reality this is probably different than your day-to-day life but i do talk to a lot of people especially when you get to the point where you get married and and have kids and you have all these other responsibilities where it's like all right this is my time Mm -hmm. i'm waking up at a normal office hour and i'm spending this number of hours per day working on something you do have to force yourself to sit down to make something if anything's ever really going to come out yes for sure you can't it kind of goes back to what we were saying you can't expect you can't wait around and expect that inspiration to come to you you have to make time to do it what is a day like for you the past couple years have actually been for me interesting with regards to that as far as when i'm in new york i was renting a rehearsal studio space to go and write and it was very much like okay well i can go here tuesday wednesday and thursday from 10 a.m to 5 p.m and I would go there Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and I would sit there, and some days I would do nothing. You know, I would have my guitar, I would try and write, but I would leave with absolutely nothing. And, uh, you know, I think back, and I'm like, well, man, a lot of songs came at 3 in the morning when I was single and weird and uh, <laughs> had no sleeping patterns yeah. and and no eating pattern, wasn't taking care of myself at all. And I would just stay up all night and write songs. And I'm like, I don't do that anymore. And so that's the other tricky part is like, am I getting older and and lame and denying that art, weirdo artistic side of myself by taking better care of myself and finding these times and being responsible? It's so hard. You have to find the balance. Yeah. You have to do both, really. You have to be able to – to me, though, what I figured out is 
yes, set yourself times and boundaries, and especially if you have a relationship and people that you need to be responsible to and share your life with, set yourself boundaries and times, but be very open to those moments and those creative moments that come out of nowhere Yeah, and allow yourself to step away from that and go, I need to do this now because I, I need to do this while it's here, while this little creature is visiting me, this little thing, I need to get all of it out and then, and then come back to real life. That's, I mean, that's a, that's one of the downsides that I don't think a lot of people talk about is, yeah, it's great that you're, I mean, you know, you get to do this really silly thing for a living and you've yeah. been able to do it for a really long time. Um, and that you get to make your own hours and, and the band gets to get together and decide when the albums come out. But the downside of being a creative person is that you're kind of at the whim of that inspiration at any point during the day. Maybe something jumps into your head and you have to drop everything else and capture that or else you're going to feel really bad about missing out on it. Yeah. I wonder sometimes if I, if I spent the entirety of my days in a, in a professional recording studio with a really good engineer, what kind of stuff I would come up with, you know? Instead of just like the voice memos on my iPhone, yeah, where I'll, I'll like listen back to an iPhone voice memo and it'll just be like me walking down the sidewalk yeah. quietly, going like, and I'll be like, I'm being what embarrassed was... that you're that guy yeah, on exactly. the street. Is but in my head was this huge full yeah. song in my head. And I'm like trying to get it into my voice memos. Yeah. And then I forget it because I was walking down the street far away from it, you know, and then like, it's like, damn, what if I had been in the studio in that moment? But then I also think, hey, if it were that good, I would remember it still. But also, if you were in a studio all day, you wouldn't be living your life. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So you'd be writing, you'd be writing songs about the walls of yeah. the studio. Which, I mean, to bring it back to another point we were talking about, it's like, I love the fact right now that we're, we're making time to be in a studio. Mm to try and capture those moments and to go into I think it's good too if any bands are listening to this go into like and this is a money thing pending but or just find that creative space yeah. don't don't worry about going in the studio I think with fully formed demos and you know these 10 songs fully go in with a little bit of an unknown and uncertainty because man that's where some of the most fun stuff comes if if you can if you can be in the studio and have that inspiration hit you and when you're with your band or whatever like We've got some amazing stuff. Like the last song on the new record was totally like I had the song, but it was just a, it was just like the melody and kind of that was it. And we just started playing it. And Richard, the producer, sat on piano. And then it was like, whoa, this is great. It turned into like our favorite song on the yeah. record. And it's the last song on the record. It's called Working Together. That was amazing. You know, if, if we had been so strict as like, no, 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 these are the nine demos and we're going to do these nine songs, we wouldn't have done that. And it's like, it, yeah, it's like just be open to those moments. Don't close them off because because you're like, well, it's not my office time to do the music and we're in the studio and we need to do our work. It's like, uh, yeah, it's just like being open to anything, anytime. It helps when you've known those people since you were 15, though. True. Yep. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a lot easier to feed off of each other and build mm -hmm. something from there. Absolutely. Yeah. You did do a solo record. I mean, how how is that process different? Well, it was kind of like bypassing the band in terms yeah. of just going straight from demos to finished product. And some of the songs I just did completely on my own. And I had a friend, Roger Levins in Toronto, who helped me produce the record. And it was really exciting. It was really fun to be able to just do something that I just fully had control over and just like made this mm -hmm. thing exactly how I wanted to do it and it didn't have anybody to say well what about this what about that it's kind of interesting was shaking it up was that part of the the impetus there sort of it was it was also just another one of those accumulations of uh, periods of songs where mm -hmm. I had all these songs and I didn't really want to there was some that I was like I don't want to change this at all 
and I kind of want this to just be my special thing. And it really felt like I was just doing it for myself, too. I didn't have a label or anybody to put it out until I was done it. And then the Canadian label that releases the Ruffian stuff said, hey, we'll put this out. We like this. So it really was just something that I had just invested my own time and money into and done just because I wanted to do it. It's interesting that you say that it was like a personal thing because, you know, your your songs are often personal and you do share them with the bands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But these were different somehow? It's that, That's a good question. I don't even know if I can fully answer what yeah. separates a Luke Lalone solo song from a band song. Aside it must have from, been part of just that point in your life that you were at. I think so. I, that, that, and that was right before Steve left the band. It was at a a point in time possibly where it was – where we probably weren't getting together that much yeah. to, as a band to work on stuff. And when it maybe was like a little bit weird when we got together or something. So that probably played a factor into it. Um, but there are still songs that feel a certain way where I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to kind of keep this one to myself or – I'll show it to the guys, but it'll be kind. Of, they'll be aware, or even they will just go like, "That sounds like more kind of a solo song than a band song." <laughs> but <laughs> maybe that's their way of saying, eh. "Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> we true." Don't yeah, really want to touch that one. There's, it's funny too, though, because this new record, every record has had those those songs. Though, I mean, Little Garçon was a bedroom demo. Yeah, we recreated it verbatim in the studio. Every one of our records has had a mix of songs that, yeah. that I've just done on my own, and that the band has gone. We're cool with it, like totally cool. Like yeah. Steve will be like, I like those drums. I'm going to just play them like that. And then Mitch will go, yeah, I like that bass line. And then we jam and we create things all together. But it's always a mix of those things. So it's, it is hard to say like, why was Little Garson a Born Ruffian song and not just a Luke Lalone solo song? Why was Needle? Cause Needle was another one. It was just like, I just wrote the whole thing and turned into a band song because it was, it's just like a gut feeling, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. You just kind of like go, yeah, this will work as a band song. The first single off the new record that was just. Sung in Miss your phone, you. yeah. Miss like you was a years voice. Ago? Yes, so that was a that was a, a lucky case of having a voice memo that actually came back. Yeah, I heard it. And went, oh, I know what I was getting at. Do there. you have just archives on the phone of all these old, and you go through them every so often? Yeah, yeah, it's good. Yeah, exactly. You go back every whatever, and yeah. go back and listen to the last fifty ones, and write in my notebook. Oh, check this one out. This one out. This one out. You're really methodical. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sort yeah. of. I try to be. I try to be thorough because I don't want to forget anything and then it's good to the, the iphone is incredible like i don't yeah. know if i i guess if i was like if this were 30 years ago i probably would be an obsessive tape recorder yeah, guy yeah. where i'd tape record everything cassettes yeah yeah i would love that to have that uh around me all the time but it is a great memory extent it's like an external hard drive for your brain sometimes for something like that i mean it, it it's a, it's very bare bones but you go back and listen to it and it's clear to you three years later that oh yeah this is really the the germ of a song in the way that the other ones aren't. Yeah, and it, and it's uh, comes down to in that moment of hearing it, yeah. it triggers something. And and that one in particular, I was in a little, I was in our little uh, rehearsal space, which is also a little recording studio that we were renting, and so that helps too. You know, I listened to it and I went, and I was inspired and had the guitar, and just the rest of the song kind of came out in the next half hour or whatever and was able to just like get it out so are you able to sort of remember where you were and what was going on when you recorded that little first bit the first bit was at my parents house on their piano that they don't have anymore it was this very out of tune piano that i loved how out of tune it was it's they couldn't they would tune it and then it would go right back out of tune and i really i liked recording that piano and and you know doing fun stuff with it i would put auto tune on the piano and it would give this crazy like like what anyway anyways i i was playing that piano and i'm not a good piano player so it's just very rudimentary 16th notes yeah. like blam, 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 that type of thing and uh 
that was it. It was just, I miss you. I miss you so much, baby. I was like, well, that's a simple little whatever. It sounds like a 50s song. But yeah, it came back around and turned into this other thing. So what's the most rewarding part of that process for you? When we got together as a band yeah. and did it and Mitch said, because I wrote that, I did the demo, and the, the original demo was much more hand claps, doo-woppy, not doo-wop, but not hard rocking necessarily. Yeah. And that was one that I showed to Mitch, and I said, As, maybe I'll use this with my friend Aaron. Maybe I'll use this for this other thing. And he was kind of like hedging your bets. quiet about it, but he really liked the song. Yeah. And then we got together to rehearse, and he was like, I really like that one. We should try it, but we should we should do it like, what if it were like this, you know? And then... Hmm. He, he was, he was like, just play, do it on electric guitar and just do downstrokes, just like, and then like, I just played it. Mitch and Steve just like came in and we all just got goosebumps and we finished it, went through it the first time. And we were like, that was awesome. Like, it just felt like electricity in the air. We all were just like, Wah! yeah, that was great. So it was like, that's the most exciting part to me. So having done this for as long as you have, you, you still have those moments? Oh man. Yeah. Maybe more than ever. Like, because like you have, I think more than ever we're, we're closer as friends. And so we're more open to those moments. You know, there's no awkward elephants in the room when we're together. It's just like, we're just having fun and creating. And, and uh, man, it's, that's the coolest part when you just write this thing and then you give it over and you give up control and the other people go, well, what about this? And they give it back to you and you go, whoa, cool. I wouldn't have thought of that. Or yeah, that's like, that's why, that's why people play in bands, I guess. That's why I play in a band. And yeah, lucky though, to have those two guys, you know, that I just happened to be in the same town as, you know, when I was a kid. There you go, that was Luke Lalond of Born Ruffians. They have a new record out now on Paperback Records called Uncle Duke and the Chief. Thanks so much to him for taking the time to do that. Really enjoy that conversation. Thanks to Joe and Samantha for helping set that up. Thanks to Vien for uh, shooting a nice, a nice photo for that one of Luke. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. Easiest is to like us and follow us over on Facebook. Rate us and review us over on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you've got any feedback, it's rylcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rylcast.tumblr.com. That is the first and best place to get all of your RIYL-related information. And uh, I think it's about it for me this week. So stick around because we will be back just about this time next week with another episode of RIYL. 